Hello and welcome to the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues that ask the obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly and Travis Buchanan. Well, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help our podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at sowhatpodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episode can be submitted by emailing hello at sowhatpodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at sowhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Well, let's talk about the other verse, Matthew 7, 1, which is, judge not that you be not judged. Or, of course, as we always hear it, judge not lest ye be judged. Just pulling the King James out for a second. That's what everyone seems to know it as. To me, I see this misused both within and without the church, and I think you guys would agree. Outside of the church, obviously, it's being used to push back against Christians that are objecting to certain moral behavior. But within the church, it's being pushed back against believers when that believer is reproofing or rebuking another brother or sister in sin. So thoughts on this verse? Well, there's two things that need to be kept in mind. You start again with context, right? What's happening in the context? And immediately following this, Jesus goes on to use sort of this parable of the the speck in your brother's eye or your neighbor's eye. So for one thing, he's locating it in community, right? So there's a, you know, we're Mm -hmm. neighbors. We all have problems. And he goes on to say, you can't take the speck out of your neighbor's eye before you take the log out of your own eye, right? And once you do take the problem, you deal with your own problem, you can go and help your neighbor deal with theirs. So he's not saying don't deal with the problems. He's not saying ignore all moral imperatives. He's not saying be a moral relativist. You know, you've got your truth and I've got my truth and don't let yours judge mine. Mm -hmm. That's not what's happening here. What he's saying is don't come to Christian community looking to just sort of help everybody out thinking that you're sort of, yeah, a level above, right? So there is a communal other oriented love Mm -hmm. and we're best suited to be what the community needs when we're willing to be honest about our own shortcomings and let the community work with us, you know, let you folks say, Hey, I see this in your life. We need to be attentive to that. And there's some red flags. And if I'm humble enough to deal with that, then I'm ready to be able to turn around and say to you, and do you see this pattern that's developed? You know, so there's that kind of mutuality that's involved there. So he's not saying ignore all moral imperatives. What he's saying is come to the table acknowledging that you're not a superior and everyone needs to be honest about that. If you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. Yeah. Because something's going to break Yeah, by yeah. the measure of which you throw it. Yeah. Do you think there's a difference then between judging and discerning? So you've kind of brought up both concepts in your explanation. We're not judging somebody because what Jesus says, that measure is going to be judged back against us. And Jesus has already told us the standard of the law is a lot higher than you think it is. Mm -hmm. If you're judging somebody for, say, you're looking at a murderer, just thinking to yourself, what an awful person, I would never do that. And then you turn and you're harboring hate to a brother or sister. Well, then 
Jesus is saying, you've broken the same law. Yeah. But when it comes to the discernment, like how do we know if a brother or sister is in sin and needs that loving rebuke? Yeah. And that's why I was trying to emphasize the community side of it heavily. Mm-hmm. Think about Matthew 18. Once again, the larger context, the gospel as a whole, the same Jesus who said, do not judge so that you may not be judged is the one who said, if your brother sins against you, go to that one and talk to him about it. Right. And if they're not repentant, take two or three brothers and talk to them about it. And mm-hmm. if they're not repentant, take them before the congregation. And if they're not repentant, kick them out. Mm-hmm. Right. So the same guy who said, don't judge said, kick them out. And you got to figure out how that works. Right. But all of it takes place in the context of a community that helps us by loving us enough to sort of get in our business and say, I see these things happen. If we're making a distinction between spiritual discernment for the sake of growing in holiness, that's one thing. If it's, I saw you were out with somebody who's not your wife last week, you know, and I'm going to go tell everybody about it behind your back kind of thing. That's, yeah. That's what Jesus is getting after here. He's like, you know, because that's not motivated out of other oriented love. Mm -hmm. It's motivated out of, I'm going to get one over Mm -hmm. on you and I'm going to hurt you. Right. Right. If you go to your brother to take the speck out of their eye before you deal with your own log, the focus is on, do I get to be vindictive and do I get to have the last laugh and do I get to, you know, sort of appear superior to everyone else. Bolster your standing. Yeah. There's this prideful motivation. That's right. And what Jesus is doing, he's calling upon community members to be humble enough, to be honest about their own sin, to be repentant of that sin, Mm -hmm. to be willing to be cleansed of that sin. And then once you're repentant and being cleansed, then you're ready to go back to the community and help other people with that as well. I'm so glad we're talking about this verse because it's one of my pet peeves. It's so often repeated like you said, both within and without the church. So I'm happy for what Matt is saying about the communal context, et cetera. Real quick, just to piggyback on what you're saying right now, Matt, a parallel passage perhaps is Galatians 6, where Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens Mm -hmm. and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So perhaps Paul even has this, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in mind when he's writing this. So if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, spiritual doesn't refer to a special superior class of Christian. This is people who live according to the Spirit, who bear the fruit of the Spirit, talked about in the previous chapter those qualities in a spirit of gentleness and with an eye to not getting caught in the transgression yourself, not overstepping into gossip or not getting caught, you know, in a similar type of sin. But it is stupid when Christians say, do not judge. And I wish they would all stop saying that. Mm. It does sound so conveniently tailored to a moral relativism that saturates our culture. And the fact that Christians are made to feel like they shouldn't judge and that they tell one another not to judge or told by the world not to judge is just dumb and we should stop doing that. Mm-hmm. Matthew 7 itself, as Matt was talking about, goes on to talk about how to remove a speck from a brother's eye. So the context itself presumes that you will make judgments, that they are necessary to live in community right. and that they should be done. There's just a way, a manner, a style in which to do this. So one of the verses actually I like to go to is John seven twenty four. 
Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. That's right. Yep. The first text I normally send Christians to if I'm one of my students or someone who says, do not judge, and I feel like they're taking out of context is, actually, Jesus tells us to judge, just to judge with right judgment. If you remember in Matthew 23, his rebuke to the Pharisees, he says they are like whitewashed tombs. They appear very presentable, beautiful on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. And I mean, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, this is a characteristic of God. He doesn't judge by what he sees on the outside. He judges by the heart. Mm -hmm. You know, the root of Jesse, this messianic passage in Isaiah chapter 11, it says this Messiah is going to judge with right judgment. And so God saw the people who were defrauding the poor or the money changers in the temple, and he made a judgment about what they were doing and how wrong it was, even if it appeared like they were performing a work of righteousness on the outside. Now, where we have to be careful is we don't have access to other men's hearts the way Jesus did or right. the way God does. We can't completely know someone else's motives. So we need to show caution, which is what the context is talking about. We need to look first at our own sin, at our own issues. Would I have reasons of pride or superiority? Do I already not like this person? Are there things that would affect how I can see the situation? Are there things that would make me not be able to see it clearly or respond in a just way? And to be cautious about those things. And there's a procedure like for something like church discipline given in Matthew chapter 18. But I just think it's stupid for Christians to repeat, do not judge, and to just give a general impression that we shouldn't be making judgments because that's not unhelpful. It doesn't help us advance as a community or advance as a kingdom of God in the world because God does stand in judgment over the church first and then over the world. I have one question as well, just for a point of clarification. I'm glad that you ended on judging as far as like an eschatological judge, the power and authority to judge final destinations, we'll say. You said we don't have access to a man's heart, neither do we have access to that individual's eternal destiny. Are we as Christians allowed to judge as far as that is concerned, who is and is not within the grace of God? Yes and no. How so? I would strongly discourage individuals from making decisions about other individuals with regard to their standing before God based on what they can see. However, part of my role as a member of the ordained clergy, when someone comes for church membership and they stand before the congregation and pledge to flee evil and declare their faith in Christ, by me presenting them and the church affirming them, we are communally making a declaration about their standing before God and their membership in the covenant. Mm -hmm. And that is good and right. So, yeah, don't go around as individuals trying to decide who's saved and who's not. Right. But when it comes to the church saying, we're in covenant together and we're going to keep each other accountable and we recognize that we participate in this covenant of right standing with God. And if someone does something and needs to be, like Matthew 18, removed from that covenant community for a time or permanently, that says something about their standing before God too, mm -hmm. right? So God has authorized the church ecclesially as a community to make declarations about people standing with God. But I would not say he's authorized individuals 
right. to make those kinds of things. And I think that's a really important thing to emphasize as well. If a member of a covenant community is telling me that they are a believer, I'm going to treat them differently yeah. when it comes to discerning and judging the works in their life than I would a non-believer. Absolutely. Right? And I think from the outside, that's why the church looks judgy. We've all heard that term before because we're just, from an outsider's perspective, especially one without a renewed, regenerate mind, it just looks like we're nitpicking at each other, trying to scrounge ourselves up to some kind of holy perfectionism. And sometimes we are. That's true. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, to thing. be fair, that's right. That sometimes is true. Sometimes that's happening. But the ideal is that when we make a public declaration of faith, when we are baptized, when we covenant with a local body of believers, we're telling those other believers, I want to be held accountable as a Christ follower because yeah. I'm on a journey of sanctification. Held accountable by you all. By you all, yeah. right. Yeah, not just like in a general yeah. broad sense. So, yeah, that's a very important right. point. I'm grateful that Travis brought up Galatians 6 because that's the place where you see church discipline, which is what we're really talking about here, mm -hmm. is not about kind of a legalistic, I'm going to bring the hammer down on you and sort of spread your sins out in front of God and right. everybody. The goal there is restoration. You who are spiritual should restore such a one found in sin with the spirit of gentleness. Now, if they don't want to be restored, it's hard to do that. And that's where Jesus is saying, if they're not repentant, you can only excommunicate them. But repentance, the goal, anytime we sit down with a brother or sister to engage in this corrective discipline, the goal is always mm -hmm. repentance and restoration. The goal is never excommunication. That's only a contingent necessity. It only becomes a necessity in the situation where someone refuses to be repentant. Yeah. The verbal picture there in Galatians 6, one is of mending a bone that's been broken or out of place. Mm. And so if you could think of a situation where someone had fallen and broken their leg morally, spiritually, the loving thing to do would be to help mend that broken bone the way a doctor would, which may cause some acute pain in the moment. However, you have an eye toward the future restoration of that person to be able to walk again without a limp or without pain. And bearing their burden might be putting their arm around your shoulder and helping them mm -hmm. walk or rehabilitate that injury until they can, under their own strength, continue on the narrow and hard path that leads to life. Yeah. So. One of the reasons this is so difficult for people, this idea of corrective discipline. When Jesus talks about, you know, dealing with your own plank and helping a brother with a speck, that's a corrective church discipline, right? Someone is falling into sin or there are red flags in their life and that needs to be handled in the community to maintain the holiness of the community. The reason that's so difficult for people to handle is because we have an ecclesial situation where we have, there are two kinds of church discipline. There's formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative discipline is the kind of thing John Wesley was doing when he took people and organized them into little groups and they got together once a week for a couple of hours and said, how is it with your soul? Right. And let's read our Bibles and let's pray and let's go to the sacraments and let's build this community of love where we're working together and serving together and loving together and reading the Bible together and being formed together as a community of believers. And when you've got that kind of relationship with someone built up over the long term, when someone begins to exhibit patterns of behavior that are dangerous, 
there's a relationship in place where you can go and say, I see some danger and let's talk about it and keep each other safe. Right? So the corrective stuff is a lot easier. Frankly, it's impossible if you don't have the formative mm. stuff, mm -hmm. but we've got an ecclesial context where you can sort of walk the aisle, raise your hand, get saved and never show up again and think you're good to go. Right. And everybody else thinks that too. Mm -hmm. Right. So if that's sort of your approach to Christianity, well, yeah, don't judge me. I walked the aisle. I did my thing. I'm saved. Yeah. I may be living like the devil, but I'm just human. And so are you. So don't judge. That's such a misrepresentation of what Jesus has for his church, mm -hmm. but that's where we found ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's scandalous for people to hear you know, what you expect people to be holy. <laughs> Don't judge me. Don't bring your law on me. Our context makes it hard for this to be done well. Yeah. I'm glad we're bringing up Jesus's process for us through rebuke and correction and discipline. So in Matthew 18, we have another really misunderstood verse from Matthew 18, 24, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That means church can be done on the golf course, right? No. In the context, it's in church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go. And there are more that find fault against him. He goes on to say, I'm there in your midst. I'm present in your, your judgment. What I think is interesting is something that's missed, and we've been talking around it, and something that's really helped me understand this passage is we've mentioned it a couple of times, which it's true if there's unrepentant sin, it's time to let them go to put them outside of the covenant community so that that sin doesn't then, especially if it's among a leader or an elder, mm -hmm. it needs to be cut off so that it doesn't become a problem or a temptation for others who might decide to walk down that same road. What Jesus says specifically is to put them out and to treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. Now, that's lost on us today, but the way that Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors was not to build a wall of separation and yeah. to cut them off from their life completely. He pursued them with the gospel. Yeah. And so you're assuming at this point, if this person does not want to accept the reproof and the rebuke that's being brought to them, despite the fact that they've told me that they are a believer, the fruit that they are bearing speaks otherwise. And I am now going to treat them as if they were an unbeliever. Maybe there's something basic in the gospel that they didn't quite get the first time around, and that this is an opportunity to bring them into yeah. the fold. Because the goal is restoration. That's right. Always yeah. restoration. That's always the goal. It's funny. I mean, you say that, treat them as a Gentile tax collector. There's the way that would have been heard by a first century Jew and the way that Jesus does it. Yeah. And they're two different things. Oh, that's right. They would have, they would have, they would have shook their fists and yeah, yeah I can do we that. We don't like those I, guys. That's right. Yeah. I'd yeah. be happy to treat what you. What about like the Samaritans? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there may be something to that as well. I think they should be pursued with the gospel. I think everyone to the very ends of the earth should be pursued with the gospel. But if you think about the existing temple structure, you know, you have the court of the Gentiles more toward the outside. They weren't allowed access that's to- right close proximity to the presence of God mm -hmm. represented by the ark and the Holy of Holies. And they weren't true believers. They weren't a part of God's covenant people. And so if someone through their behavior willingly places themselves outside of the new covenant community in an unrepentant way, then there is a danger to that person and it should be evident to them. It's a loving thing to make it clear to them 
that based on their actions and their continued unrepentance, they don't belong to God and are in danger of judgment, of being lost, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the problem with church discipline that I've seen is that it rarely is it ever done well or properly. Rarely is the process ever carried out because a person can just leave and go across the street and there's another church there where they are unknown. That's right. And if they have a certain level of gifting, you know, I'm thinking of various spiritually abusive pastors or people in the category where they have a certain level of Bible knowledge. Maybe they have charismatic speaking gifts. And if you didn't know them, they would appear very attractive as someone who could help build ministry or draw in people. Too many churches care about attendance and giving more than they care about holiness and just keeping the ship running. And so discipline is mishandled. It's either overly harsh and legalistic and not done with a goal toward restoration. It's either short-circuited by the person under discipline just leaving and going somewhere else because they are deceived and joining a new community where they are unknown and can just continue to repeat some of the pattern of their past sins or rise to prominence until, you know, the inevitable blowout occurs again. Or it's minimized because a person is deemed too valuable to a body or he's an elder or he's my friend. And it would be really uncomfortable in our relationship if I were to attempt to hold his feet to the fire Mm -hmm. on this thing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look the other way Mm -hmm. or we'll minimize it or we'll wash it in a way so that we don't affect the body. We don't affect our giving or attendance. And we just kind of create a PR campaign around something that really should be brought into the light and rebuked. I mean, let's add one. It's not done at all because of fear of man issues. I mean, you're hinting at it a little bit there because it would be uncomfortable to enact church discipline on an individual, but sometimes it's not even on the table for discussion because people fear what other people think about them. And that is obviously a source of pride and something that would need to be worked out. Yeah. One of the important passages regarding this, particularly as it pertains to elders, is in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there we have a parallel with Matthew 18. As for those, so these are elders, who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. So there, I think, is clearly and as powerfully as he can express it, Paul's saying, don't show favoritism. Don't back out of this uncomfortable situation Mm -hmm. due to relationship. Don't try to minimize the sin of elders who persist in sin. A public rebuke needs to take place for the sake of holiness and because angels are watching over your assembly. Mm -hmm. And let's do right in the sight of God and these flaming ministers. I've seen it badly handled in the past in some situations. And in Revelation, in the early chapters, you have the letters to the churches from Jesus. And there is this image of a lampstand as the presence of 
the spirit in that church, of the Holy Spirit among the church. And Jesus threatens to remove a lampstand from a church if they don't change the way they are living and practicing the faith. And I wonder if there aren't churches who years ago had their lampstand removed from the Lord because they refused to act in a way that would reflect the holiness that should be a part of the assembly, that they punted on these responsibilities and Jesus came in judgment and took their lampstand. And so they may continue to function superficially as a church, but there's no spiritual power in their assembly anymore because they haven't, they haven't obeyed God. Mm-hmm. That's a terrifying prospect. I think you're right. The flip side to that, here we are given ways in which to rebuke, especially what you've just read, elders in the position of leadership. What is the blessing for this? One immediate blessing is given in this passage in verse 20, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. If sin is really a dangerous thing, if the road to salvation and life is narrow and hard, as Jesus teaches, then those who fall off of that path or were deceiving themselves and others and were never traveling that path to begin with, if you are following someone like that, there's a danger that you too may wander Mm -hmm. outside of the fold. Mm -hmm. And so if sin is taken seriously within the congregation and favoritism is not shown to those in leadership who persist in unrepentant sin, then there is a warning, and the New Testament is full of warning passages, and it's sometimes difficult to understand how these should be interpreted in light of our eternal security or if salvation is once and for all, etc. We're not getting into those thorny issues right now, but there is a blessing of, like with Ananias and Sapphira in the early church in Acts 5, wow, God takes sin seriously, mm-hmm. and I should be quick to repent mm-hmm. of my sin, or here's an occasion to examine my own heart. And so, which happens even before the confrontation with the elder persisting in sin occurs, if you're following Jesus's words in Matthew 7 and Matthew 18 of you're examining your own heart and where's the log in your eye first. And so in the Christian life, we can't have enough, I think, of those occasions to examine our life, not in a morose, despairing way. You know, I I like the thought for every look at your sin, take 10 looks at Christ idea of, you know, it's not a puritanical wallowing in my depravity and spiraling into depression. It should hopefully result in repentance and expressions of gratitude and joy for full payment of my sin that's That's been made in Christ. Illumination of the atonement. Yeah. If the church allows sin, unrepentant sin to run rampant and does not take the holiness of the community seriously, then we will never live into our God-given vocation to embody the character of God Mm. to the world. Ezekiel 36, the prophet says, God says through the prophet, the nations will know that I am the Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. Mm -hmm. How are the nations going to know that God is God? He's going to take a bunch of dirty, nasty, ugly, messy sinners who have profaned his holy name and dragged it through the mud. And he's going to take them. He's going to take out their hard hearts of stone. He's going to give them soft hearts that are malleable and sensitive to his commandments and the leading of his spirit. He's going to give them his spirit. 
And the purpose of giving his spirit is so that they'll be able to obey his commands. And in obeying his commands, they embody his perfect love to one another and to the world. And the world then knows your God is the real deal Mm -hmm. because nobody else can take a scoundrel and make him into a saint. Mm -hmm. We've alluded to also the eschatological future judgment. And I think there's a huge blessing in church discipline within a local body of believers maybe like a negative and a positive blessing in the negative, that individual who's being rebuked is given a very stern foreshadowing or foretaste of what is coming. And what a better gift absent the Holy Spirit and the atoning work of Christ than a sobering reminder that your works will be judged and weighed. And the reality check that this is a small a foreshadow of what's coming. The positive would be the small justice given to individuals that may have been sinned against by that leader. And so they now have a small foretaste of what God is doing at a cosmic scale with the enemy and sin and death. Mm. He's not going to stand for this. You may be going through a very hard time in your life, and we've all walked through valleys, but he's getting rid of them. He's judging that. And that church discipline, even in a small sense, gives us just a tiny glint behind the scenes to hope for what is coming at a much larger scale. When I was a teenager, occasionally you would see bumper stickers and keychains that say Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. It always sort of rubbed me the wrong way because it really seems to not take the question of holiness and judgment seriously. Mm. You know, the unwritten assumption there is you don't have to be holy because you're forgiven. It's not a very Methodist keychain. Oh, it doesn't sound like that at all. What a stunningly, (laughs) stunningly, biblically incompetent thing to say. It's certainly certainly short-circuiting the sanctification process of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, because the church is not just a gathering of sinners who indulge in their sin. Mm-hmm. The church is a gathering of repentant sinners, and that's key. So you don't just sort of baptize everybody's sins and pretend like it's swell. Repentance and the pursuit of holiness are unquestionably essential for the church's vocation to embody the holy love of God in the world, mm-hmm. for the life of the world. How are people who are committed to their own sinfulness ever going to fill the world with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea yeah I mean, maybe a shameless plug to our next series on the reformation Martin Luther's first of his 95 theses was the whole of a Christian's life is one of repentance and he recognized it and it's one that certainly envelops this idea of judging not lest you be judged 